My name's Paul Owens, so if you're brand new to Church at Four, welcome. Uh, we are going to have question time at the end of the service today, so there should be a phone number that pops up on the screen at some stage. You can text a question through to that, and Greg will lead us through those this afternoon. Uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do want to thank you for the time that we've got now. Uh, we pray that you would help us to put aside the busyness of life, uh, to hear you speak through this, pa- this part of your word, uh, help us to know your truth, to grow in our knowledge of you, but also our love of you, uh, so that we might be better able to serve you with all of our days. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I want to tell you a story about Mark and Linda Filmer. They're at church at nine. A few months back now, uh, Mark and Linda were at home together and Mark, uh, sorry, Linda had sent Mark a text message. They were both in the same house. And she tell, tells me that she'd just sent a text message to Mark to say, what do you think about iced, iced coffees? Uh, Mark was in the middle of watching the cricket and so Linda um, had suggested this and he dutifully headed off to the kitchen in order to make iced coffees. Uh, Linda thought to herself, probably I should go and give him a hand to do all this work. And she walked out to the kitchen to find Mark lying on the kitchen floor. She tells me that her initial thought was, what are you doing lying down, Mark? And then she pushed and prodded him and realised that he was unconscious uh, and that his heart had stopped. Kind of crucial to remember some things when your spouse is clinically dead at your feet in your kitchen at home, isn't it? What do you want to remember? What's important? Yes, CPR. You want to remember CPR. That's exactly right. You want to remember CPR. And Linda says that she had for years and years been trained in CPR. She commenced CPR 19 minutes later after the Ambos had arrived after 12 minutes. Uh, They shocked him for the third time and his heart restarted and he is fit and well, miraculously. But it kind of narrows your thoughts, doesn't it? When the pressure comes on, When life gets incredibly difficult, what do you need to remember? That's where we're headed with Esther. But if you've got Esther 4 open in front of you, that'll help. Uh, Let me first start by giving you a quick summary of Esther 3. The king, along with Haman, the right-hand man to the king, have both made this law and edict uh, that there would be a day coming towards the end of the year when anyone who had anything against the Jews could kill the Jews and take all of their goods. So D-Day is coming, if you like, the bad day is coming for the annihilation and destruction of all of the Jewish people. So chapter 4 starts, not surprisingly, with Mordecai in mourning. He's torn torn his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and he's making quite a scene. He's moved outside of the king's palace, outside of the civil service, and he's carrying on quite a treat, totally understandably. Esther sends uh, one of her assistants to Mordecai with some clothing, clearly concerned, not concerned about the issue of the destruction of the Jewish people, but concerned that Mordecai is making a scene. And Mordecai sends back to Esther with the news that they are threatened to be annihilated with a copy of the edict and the exact amount of money that Haman had offered to pay for the destruction of the Jews and basically requests that Esther must plead for mercy to the king. And then Esther replies, have a look with me at verse 10. 
Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces, know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court, without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. If you wanted to summarise what Esther says, it's basically this, you've got to be joking. Mordecai says, just turn up to the king and plead for mercy. And Esther replies, you have got to be kidding. If I walk into his presence, I'll have my head removed. That's the sort of relationship it is. That was, that was what happened for anyone who just walked into the king's presence and interrupted him. If you've ever wanted to have an office space where you would never get interrupted, you need this sort of law, don't you? And it tells you that there was, there was some serious marriage counselling required for Esther and the king. But that's the risk that Esther goes to if she is simply to walk into the presence of the king. Alongside of that, for 30 days, he hasn't wanted to see her. He's not all that interested in hearing about her view of politics. She's a queen of absolute convenience for the king's use and abuse. And for 30 days, quite frankly, he's had a harem full of better options. So if the queen turns up, it would be nothing for the king to say, take her head off. I've had it with her. We can just get rid of her and have her removed. It's not looking like Esther is the wonderful princess story, is it? But hopefully we dispelled that myth a while ago. So she has said to Mordecai, you've got to be joking. Mordecai hears of this and then responds. Have a look with me at verse 12. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time of this. If you're looking at this and thinking that there is nothing else in our world bar natural events, there is nothing beyond what you can see and touch and feel that affects the way our world plays out, then what Mordecai says is absolute nonsense. And Mordecai says, don't worry Esther, there will be some way that the Jews will actually find relief. They will be delivered. But in the scheme of things, you look at this and think there is no way that that's going to happen. All the power of the world is arrayed against the people of God. The most powerful two men in the world have decided there will be a day when the Jewish people will be destroyed. There's actually no worldly hope. What Mordecai says to Esther is absolute nonsense. Uh, it's it's uh, coming to the end of the international rugby season and the Wallabies played the All Blacks again this time around and I feel like it's a little... What Mordecai says to Esther is a bit in the realms of a mad keen Wallabies fan who discusses with a friend the Wallabies are playing the All Blacks and of course the Wallabies will win. If you know anything about rugby, you know that's absolute nonsense. All of the evidence before you is that The All Blacks, the New Zealand rugby team, are always going to beat the Australians. That's simply exactly what you would expect to happen. And so it would be nonsense to say the Wallabies must be going to win. But Mordecai says something like that. Mordecai says to Esther, Esther, relief and deliverance is going to come from the Jews. 
Verse 14, if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. Well, why on earth does Mordecai say that? I think when you look at it, you see that Mordecai remembers one thing when the pressure comes on in life. When life goes badly pear-shaped, when everything is wrong, there is one thing that Mordecai remembers that you and I ought to remember all the time. Mordecai remembers that God always keeps his promises. And despite everything externally, everything that it looks like is happening in the world, everything that is panning out amongst human affairs, Mordecai trusts there is a God who is in control of our world. And that God has made grand promises to his people and that God will deliver. But externally, there is no hope for the Jews in the current circumstances unless that God really is acting in the world. And that is exactly where Mordecai's hope is. His hope is that God saves, and that is exactly what God does, and despite all of the human evidence that's racked up against Mordecai and the Jews, he trusts that God will somehow deliver his people. He trusts that God will deliver on his promises. All of the promises in the Old Testament that God has made to make his people a great people and to bring them back one day from exile, to place them in the promised land, to be receiving the blessings of God, all of those promises Mordecai trusts God will somehow bring to bear. What are you and I to do as we read through Esther and try and figure out how ought we, how ought we to respond? We ought to remember that we trust in a God who always keeps his promises. And no matter how badly our world feels like it is falling apart, like everything is against you, we know that God will keep his promises. That doesn't mean that life is going to be cruisy, not at all. But we can trust that God's good promises will be delivered. And essentially, the bulk of God's good promises are not related to this world. The promises of God to this world are suffering is going to come. But in the end, there will be a new heavens and a new earth and God will bring his people into that place under his blessings at that time. And Mordecai has all that in his mind and in his heart as he speaks to Esther. Mordecai deals with super stress and immense suffering with a quiet confidence. Why? Because he knows the character of God. So that even in the midst of this threat of destruction of all the people of God, Mordecai can trust that in the end, everything will work out for good. Friends, you and I, if you're a Christian here today, need to know and remember at all times that in all the difficulties of life, God will be at work for good for those who love him. Sometimes what is right in front of us is so clear in the day-to-day struggles of life and God's promises are so distant. They seem so far off that we lose sight of of the hope in those promises. Sometimes our present struggles in the here and now speak so loudly We can't hear anything of the promises of God at all and they drift into the obscure distance. We lose sight and we lose hearing 
on the promises of God, the promises to bless his people. Friends, we've got to be people of the book, people who are reminded of scripture, of reminded of the promises of God, promises to bring life and life to the full and eternal life. Promises to bring a new place, a new heavens and a new earth. Promises to bring an eternity without crying or mourning or pain or death. Friends, we need to be people who know Jesus because all of God's promises are yes in Christ Jesus. So that as we hold on to those promises, we can face suffering and hardship with confidence. So that you and I might be able to say with the Apostle Paul, I consider the present, the pre- these present sufferings not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Unless we know the promises of God, we won't put up with suffering. Unless we're reminded of the promises of God, we won't remember those promises. Well, we've moved into summer. I know it doesn't feel like it at the moment. There's not too many um, shorts and thongs today. It feels a little bit like we've stepped back maybe towards the end of winter, given the weather. But summer brings some big changes that come with it, don't they? If you live in a place with a lot of trees around your place, uh, no doubt through the spring you would have heard a few birds making a few chirps, a few noises that go with those trees. And the wind whistles through the new leaves as spring starts. When you get to summer, the cicadas come out. You can hear something of them out here, but at my place, once one cicada starts, it's a chorus and it's a deafening sound. It drowns out absolutely everything else. You can't hear the birds, you can't hear the wind anywhere. All you can hear are the cicadas who have taken over everything. Friends, our world is speaking loudly and clearly to us. That all there is in our world is what you can see and touch and feel. There is nothing else. So you might as well enjoy everything in the here and now because any hope for any future outside of this world is foolishness. And our world is speaking so loudly that unless we are encouraging one another to hear the promises of God regularly, the promises of God will be drowned out. And we won't hold on to them. We won't hold on to the great hope of the gospel. And we'll move back to the empty and futile hopes and promises of this world when suffering and hardship comes our way. We need to hear the gentle whisper of the gospel truth regularly that there is a God who controls all of history for his purposes, that he does have grand plans to bless his people beyond measure for all eternity that it is well and truly within God's plans that his people would suffer sometimes grievously in this life. But all of that is within God's plans to bring his people to an eternity under incredible blessing for his own glory. There's more news in the story of Esther. As Mordecai says this great speech in verse 14 that many people think is a really central verse out of all the, all the book, and I'm sure it is, uh, Mordecai points Esther to another truth. Have a look with me at the, in the middle, right in the middle of verse 14. Mordecai says, uh, You and your family, father's family will perish. Let me pick it up from just before there. I'll start from verse 14. If you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. 
but you and your father's family will perish. Again, that's an astounding thing for Mordecai to say. Esther is safe as houses, sitting in the palace, not known for her ethnic background. No one knows that he shares among the Jews and ought to be under the same edict, the same law of destruction that's coming. And it seems like, humanly speaking, the wisest thing that Esther could do is just keep quiet. Don't say anything. And then you'll live out your days with all of your people being destroyed, but you'll live out your days and enjoy all of the privileges of living in the king's palace. That would seem like wisdom to us. But Mordecai says with astounding confidence, God's going to save the Jews somehow. But if you don't speak up now, you'll be destroyed. You'll be cursed. Why on earth does Mordecai say this? I think everything Mordecai says here comes out of the scriptures because he knows the promises of God and trusts that God delivers on those promises. So let me read for you one of the great promises God makes to his people, to Abraham when he's uh, making promises that will flow down to all God's people throughout generations. Genesis 12, 2 and 3 says, God's words to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. Mordecai is just telling Esther exactly what God has told to his people previously. God will be faithful to his promises. He will bless, he will save his Jews, because he has to have his people to bless for all of eternity. But for those that curse God's people, then there will be nothing but curses that come from God. And so if Esther retreats and tries to find comfort in the palace and fails to speak up, then God must bring, bring curses on the one that would curse the people of God. Esther herself would be destroyed and her father's family if she failed to speak up in defence of God's people. What does Mordecai do in all this? He trusts that God is a God who has made wonderful promises in his word and trusts that God will fulfil those promises. And so he warns Esther and encourages Esther as well. Friends, what are we to do? Keep an eye on the scriptures. Know the promises of God. And that helps us to live wisely and to live well in God's world. Put simply, trust in Jesus and blessings will come. Ignore Jesus and curses will come. You just have to wait long enough. So friends, put your trust in Jesus in the here and now and blessings will come. Uh, Esther then actually responds to Mordecai in in a step of enormous courage. Have a look with me at verse 16. Esther replies to Mordecai, Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Esther's showing enormous courage to say this, really. She is going to risk her life to step in front of the king. And she says, if I perish, I perish. I think she's probably saying, I expect that I'm going to have my head lopped off. But I will do this because it's the right thing to do. The interesting thing here is Mordecai is instructed to get all the Jews to fast. Esther says, get everyone together, everyone in the city, and everyone is to fast for three days, and then I'll present myself before the king. 
Everywhere else in the Old Testament, it's either stated openly or seriously implied that if anyone's to fast, it'll mean praying. If anyone is to actually stop eating, it's in order to be set aside to call on the Lord in prayer. And when Mordecai earlier is dressed in sackcloth, it comes along with repentance and calling calling out to the Lord in prayer as well. And yet in both those instances in the passage that we've read today, there is no mention of those practices that people use to present themselves before God. And there's no mention in the entire book of Esther of the name of God. It's all been taken out of the book of Esther entirely. And I think it's for a purpose. If you've ever been to the theatre and you see a moment in a show where there are characters singing or dancing or speaking to one another on stage and they expect that someone is going to come from the wings, occasionally you see the spotlight comes down on the stage waiting for that character to enter from the wings. Everyone on stage knows they are there and we're all just waiting to see them pop out from the side and take the stage and play their part. In the book of Esther, the author has taken God out of every part, of every implication, every stated part of the book of Esther. I think for the purpose that it wants to shine a spotlight on the only character who is never named. It's the God of the universe who's controlling all these events in the book of Esther that makes sense of how it's put together. Quite frankly, without a God who controls everything in here, the book is nonsense. It makes no sense to think that somehow the Jews would miraculously be saved. It makes no sense to fast unless you are actually calling out to God to rescue at that time as well. See, that is our story. God is taken out in order that God himself would be spotlighted. He doesn't walk onto the pages of this story, but he is clearly seen. And so it's an encouragement to us to know that among all of the difficulties of life described in the book of Esther, there is a God who's in control. There is a God who makes sense of all of human history as it pans out. And that God is at work in this story to save his people from certain destruction. And that's an encouragement to you and to I to continue to put our trust in that God. Even when life is very, very difficult for the people of God. Even when there is enormous persecution that comes the way of the people of God. And did you notice how God is at work to bring about that saving work? He uses Esther and Mordecai. He uses Esther, this lone figure... Uh, who is in the palace, separated from all of her people. As the story unfolded today, Mordecai keeps on sending messengers to Esther and Esther keeps on sending messengers back to Mordecai because Esther is trapped, if you like, as the queen in the palace. No one can go into the harem apart from the eunuchs who are not a threat to the king's possessions. And so Esther is all alone and the only one that is required to put her life at risk in order to save the people of God. So Esther steps in before the king of the entire empire, before all of the rulers, and before the ruler and all of the power of the world to save the people of God from being destroyed. 
You can just imagine after three days of fasting what the Jews are thinking. Esther is their hero, their champion. And as we know, the story unfolds that she succeeds. No doubt she's the hero. She's the champion of the story. That is how God saves. But this story of God's saving work shows us how God saves in a greater story that would come in the Bible timeline. When God used another person who too was all alone, abandoned by his friends, so that there was no one else as he faced all of the power of the world in front of him. And he risked his life as he stepped before those rulers in order to save the people of God from being destroyed by their sins. But this one didn't just risk his life, this one gave his life up to death. And in so doing, he saved God's people from being destroyed by taking the punishment for sin on himself and suffering and dying in their place. And once again, God's great plan of salvation had occurred. And so we ought to make a big deal of Esther and Mordecai because this is a wonderful insight into how God saves his people. But even more so, Esther should point us forward to the greater saving work of the Lord Jesus who saves from a greater threat than the threat of the world destroying God's people but from the threat of sin destroying God's people. So that you and I ought to see that greater saving work and worship and celebrate the saving work of Jesus where God delivers once again to save his people because that is what our God does. So praise God for this miraculous work that he does in Esther. But praise God even more for the saving work that he does in Christ. Let's pray. Our Lord God and Heavenly Father, we do want to thank you for the book of Esther that shows us that you, you are the great author of all of human history. That in what seems like some very ordinary and everyday events, you are the one who is orchestrating all of it for your own glorious purposes, to save a people for yourself, to show mercy where there might have been death and destruction. So our, our Lord God, we want to praise you even more so for the work of the Lord Jesus, who has saved us, from certain death and destruction, where we see a greater mercy. And so we praise you and worship you for this wonderful work of salvation that comes to us in Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen.